Welcome to America the Not So Bizarre. I'm your host, Jeremy Rausch. And I'm Jordan. <laughs> just kidding. Just, this is still America the Bizarre, but yes. it just, I feel like the name is losing credibility just as, as time goes on. Like, <laughs> I was, I think I was talking to my mom and I was like, yeah, did you see the My Pillow guy, Mike Lindell, walked out of the White House with papers that was talking about like in stating martial law and i was like i really shouldn't be saying any of those words together like that shouldn't be a sentence <laughs> when you're talking about politics ever but here we are yep see and i the more i thought about it that was just a cover up what he was really doing was trying to get trump to put my pillow pillows in all of his hotels ah uh, i see it yeah that's yeah that's like the underlying it's like i supported you why don't you buy, like... I can get into your conspiracy theories. 50,000 pillows from me. <laughs> Keep me busy for the next year. Yeah, like, really, seriously, historians and podcasters are going to have a field day with 2020 slash 2021 in about 20 years. <laughs> well, I mean, they already are. <laughs> they but already they're, are. They're, again, they're going to revisit it. Right, yeah. I'm saying like history podcasters yeah, yeah. rather than like current news yeah, yeah. podcasters. Yeah. We'll have our day here. They'll in have a hindsight. Few They'll have hindsight. And yeah, exactly. Yeah, be able to like analyze everything like with hopefully some more information surrounding everything. Some clarity about yeah. what's actually been going on. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> we can figure out what happened. <laughs> right. Oh, man. So, for this week's presidential trivia, which president liked to swim nude in the Potomac River every morning? Mm. Which old white guy do you think <laughs> liked to get naked in the Potomac? In the Potomac every single morning. Potomac? A, I don't think that's how you say it. Potomac? Pot Potomac. Potomac. <laughs> get in the car. Go to the Potomac. So the river in DC. I know. Not Boston. I know, but I'm like that's my that's my East Coast accent. Ah. <laughs> Everybody sounds like they're from Boston I, to me. I thought that was like yeah. <laughs> I thought you were trying to do like a Kennedy. Oh. Nope. Nope. Okay. So do you but, have a guess? Which white dude like to get naked? Andrew Jackson. Oh. I could I can kind of see where you're coming from. It yeah. wasn't him. But I can ah. see where you're coming from. <laughs> so the answer will be at the end of this episode, so stay tuned. Okay, so a lot of people, you know, the vaccines for COVID is, you know, coming out and people are starting to get their shots and get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. um, and then there is, you know, a lot Turning of... Turning into zombies. No, no, they're not. <laughs> Oh, right. No, they're not. We got to be really, really specific. That was a joke. <laughs> but um, no, but like, and then, you know, there was a whole bunch of news about everybody that signed up for like the vaccine trials because mm -hmm. you have to have people. Yeah. Human trials. Know, human trials before you or you should before you release a vaccine or some drug like that. Right. Have you ever thought about signing up for a scientific trial? I, I have, but I've. Like, I find out that it's usually involves way too much time commitment for the pay. Like, yeah. every time I, like, every time I've seen an opportunity, you know, like, I'm always like, Ooh, that'd be cool. 
and then they're like, we'll pay you twenty-five to $5,000, depending upon which, you know, category you're in. Yeah. And we need you to come in five days a week for the next six years. That's like, well... Well, I'm definitely going to only qualify for the $25 because I feel like that's how that always goes. Right. <laughs> and I don't think I want to commit that much time to... Uh, of my life. Yeah, for 25 bucks. And I just always feel bad for the people that like have an actual disease. Right. And then sign up for it and then turns out, yeah, like a year later or whatever. Some crazy... They found out that they were on the placebo the entire time. Oh, right. Or, yeah, yeah. Or the bad symptoms, too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> It's just very much a gamble. So people that actually do sign up for trials, I think you are very brave yeah. and for doing that and because no. we absolutely need you to yeah. do those to do be a, you know, right. a test trial subject so right. that, you know, modern medicine can advance. Right. So into our story. Is this another eugenics episode? No. No, it's not. Oh wow. That's what that lead in. But <laughs> <laughs> that's where we were going. <laughs> On September 16, 1940, FDR signed the Selective Training and Service Act into law that required all men between the ages of 21 and 45 to register for the draft. There had been drafts before, but this right. was the this was America's first peacetime draft because although World War II was happening, America was not in World War II yet. Right. So we were technically in peacetime. Right. When Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, Congress expanded the act to include all able-bodied men ages 18 to 64 to register. Of the over 10 million U.S. servicemen and servicewomen that served during World War II, around 40% were volunteers and the other 60% were drafted. Of the 34.5 million men that registered for the draft, so that's not everybody that just got drafted, that's just who... 34 million signed up. Signed up for it. 72,354 applied to be conscientious objectors. And around 37,000 were granted an exemption from combatant military service as conscientious objectors. Wow. So like 5% of those that declared conscientious objection? Well, actually about half. 72,000 applied, 37,000 were granted. Oh, okay. I thought you said 3,700. Sorry, yeah. And, I mean, it's half because it was actually really hard to prove. To to prove. Um, Because it wasn't like nowadays where you say it and they're just like, okay, well. Right. So back then, these conscientious objectors had to state that they had a firm, fixed, and sincere objection to participation in war in any form or the bearing of arms by reason of religious training and belief. So it really had to be... Your religion said you could sure, not. Sure, and I'm sure it also had something to do with, because, like, back then when you registered for the draft, like, you actually had to go to, like, an official to do it. It's not like today where you go and you fill it out online. Right. And I'm sure there was people that were like, eh, I don't think so. Yeah. And then. Oh, I'm sure. You know, like, they're like, be a man. Well, yeah, and especially with World War II happening, um, it was seen as very cowardly right. to declare uh, conscientious objector status. Right. Because they're like, why aren't you fighting for your country? Like, they right. attacked us. Right. Well, they hadn't at this point. Well. Yeah, but yeah. But yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, They're threatening the free will. So, and you could not claim conscientious objector status based on a particular conflict or political belief. So you couldn't be like, I'm a conscientious objector because I don't believe in fighting Nazis or I don't like FDR. Like that's not a good enough reason. You had to legitimately not believe in violence. Right. 43,000 conscientious objectors were drafted and they were forced to make a decision serve as a non-combatant in the military, go to prison, or join the civilian public service. 25,000 chose to serve as a non-combatant, where many served as medics. 6,000 went to prison. Hmm. They're just like, forget it, just send me to prison. What was the jail term? Uh, I didn't... It's like a year? I don't know how long they had to go to prison for, but I do know that at the time, about one-sixth of the prison population in America was made up of... These objectors. Yeah. Which I feel like is a lot. lot. Yeah. Yeah. One in six. Yeah. Yeah. And then 12,000 joined CPS or the Civilian Public Service. Hmm. For those that joined CPS, they were sent to one of 152 camps to perform forestry work and fight forest fires, or they were sent to a mental institution to care for mental deficient patients and maintain the facilities. It's like if you're not going to fight. Yeah. yeah. If you're not going to fight the war overseas, you're going to take over all of these jobs. jobs that that it, yeah. yeah. You're going to build roads. Right. You're going to fight forest fires. Right. Which is like, I mean, it's good that they at least identified that use because I absolutely 100% agree. Like, not everybody is fit to go to war. Oh, absolutely. So it's one of those things where literally, if you draft all your military aged men, who's, I don't know. Tending to the farms and and I mean this in the context of the 1940s when right. women were homemakers and oh yeah and obviously the women stepped up and filled that role but as well yeah but I mean like you know they talk about people there people talk about having a you know a gender neutral like everybody just has to register for the draft right and like it's it's yes whatever i mean you know but you still have a country this giant that land mass that needs a, that needs a, a, a civ- you know a population that just not isn't just made up of all the right. a civilian sick and population. lame like the sick and lame you know yes <laughs> healthy people to actually like keep the country running right, right. while everybody else is overseas right right yeah. um actually like a lot of the people were kind of okay with the forestry work. It's the people that were sent to all the mental mental institutions. Um, they said that was the really hard job. Oh, um, sure. Because they're not trained also. And they received, like, basically no training before they were assigned before to they were showed up. Yeah. And I, a lot of them struggled with knowing, like, now because they're object to violence, how much violence to use or how much strength to use against some of these mental health patients. Wow. To, like, subdue them and stuff. Right. And so they really struggled at those jobs. Right. So the CPS had been formed by historically peaceful churches, the Mennonites, Brethren, and Quakers, so that their members could still help the nation in a time of war mm-hmm. and uphold their nonviolent beliefs, basically. So this organization already existed pre-draft. So it became it came into about 1940, so when the draft okay. was put in. Enact, and yeah. they said, you know, we don't want our men We to We as organizations fight. have to identify right, how and we so can be. They basically worked with the select service, mm-hmm. the draft, to set up the CPS. Hmm. 
And they're basically like, you know, we just ask that you allow our men to join the CPS and we'll kind of take care of the rest of it. Men from over 120 religions signed up with CPS along with some secular objectors. The men were given hard jobs, like we said, but they were not paid for the work like a soldier fighting overseas was. Hmm. Their living expenses were paid by several different church committees. In 1943, conscientious objectors were offered a new opportunity to become a human guinea pig under the U.S. Office of Scientific Research and Development. Mm. Now known as the Marines. (laughs) Wait, what? No. (laughs) Several men felt that being a human guinea pig was a better option than the other jobs that they were being given and competed for the few spots that were open. 500 conscientious objectors were ultimately chosen to participate in the different experiments. One of the objectors who signed up for the experiments was named Neil Hartman and said, We were called yellow bellies and things like that. I wanted to prove that I wasn't afraid to take risks if it did good. I would not take risks to kill people, but if it would save people, actually I was happy that I had the opportunity to show the world I was willing to take risks. Thanks. The experiments were chosen because they wanted to see how healthy men that were similar in age and stamina of the soldiers fighting overseas would fare against many of the problems that soldiers were currently facing, like diseases such as malaria, hepatitis, and pneumonia, along with parasite infestations, extreme temperatures, high and low altitudes, and varying diets. Hmm. At a Forest Service CPS station located in New Hampshire, 30 objectors were made to wear lice-infested clothes for several weeks. Researchers tested out different insecticide powders to see which ones got rid of the lice and the symptoms that the objectors experienced. The objectors continued to work nine-hour days building roads while wearing the lice clothes. So they actually didn't get to just wear lice clothes. They still had to. So they were sitting around playing cards and lice jackets. They're building roads and lice jackets. That's crazy. The objectors had to follow a certain number of rules. No purposefully killing the lice. Like, you couldn't just, like, go around, like, <laughs> squishing. Them. Yeah. No changing or washing underwear or bedding. And no removal of undergarments except for the removal of undershirts necessitated by heat during the work day. They would be allowed to bathe and change their outer clothing, though. So, good. Thanks. But they don't get to change their underwear. <laughs> yeah, that'd be the one I'd want to change. Yeah. Each objector was given a pair of undershorts that had a patch that contained lice eggs and between 50 and Uh, 100 adult lice. Ah. Right there in your crotch. Yeah. After it was deemed that each objector had enough lice covering their body, they were given powders that they were to put in their underwear, armpits, and crotch. None of the groups of objectors were deemed louse-free after the first round of the experiment, but some of the men developed a scrotal irritation and others had clothing that was stained yellow. So... After all of that, that they they still have lice. (laughs) The experiment was ran again with different powders, and eventually two powders were proven to rid the men of lice, but it stained their skin and clothes and caused nasal irritation, and one of the powders produced a burning of the scrotum in one of the men. Ouch. So like, yeah, maybe that one (laughs) still isn't good. Probably not preferred, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So they did it again. So I think it's all just the same men, still working nine hours a day, still infected with lice. And they're like, okay, hey, well, we're trying to find something that'll get rid of the lice, but... Yeah, now we're, know. like, really actually trying to help you get rid of the lice. Yeah. 
We thought for sure one of those would work. Yeah. So a third trial was ran where a powder named MYL, that was kind of just like the code name given to it, was found to kill all the lice with minimal symptoms. So they decided just to go with that one. Call it a success. And- yeah. In the war in Europe, particularly Italy, hepatitis was rampant among U.S. soldiers. More U.S. soldiers had contracted hepatitis than had been killed or wounded during battle. Mm. One of the big things was the soldiers were getting a yellow fever shot before they're going overseas, or while they were overseas too, and hepatitis was in the yellow fever shot because they had been contaminated. And so all these men were getting hepatitis instead of getting yellow fever. Um. And when you get hepatitis, it affects your liver and it would turn you yellow. Oh. So people were like, oh, you got yellow, you must have got the yellow fever shot because you're yellow. But it's really because... They have hepatitis. hepatitis. Yeah. And they got jaundice. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Dr. John Neef and Dr. Joseph Stoke from the University of Pennsylvania recruited objectors for their hepatitis study. In one of the hepatitis experiments, nine objectors were inoculated with a plasma transfusion or a yellow fever vaccine shot that was tainted with hepatitis B. Eight of the nine contracted hepatitis. Their blood and urine was regularly collected while their symptoms were closely monitored over a period of 160 to 230 days. And that experiment was just to find out if men could get hepatitis from the yellow fever shot. That was it. This wasn't about curing hepatitis. This was just to see if they would contract it. And they did. Uh, Drum roll, please. (laughs) Spoiler alert. They got it. Yeah. So after the experiment, it was determined that plasma serum could transmit hepatitis, that the onset of hepatitis B was shorter than what had been believed, and that hepatitis B could occur without jaundice. Hmm. So I just kind of feel bad that they're like, here, we're going to put hepatitis in your arm to see if you get hepatitis. Yep, I got it. Got it. (laughs) Jeez. Um, Isn't it crazy? Like, that's like the extent of the testing. Like, yeah. Well, thank you for all your hard work. Thank you for yes. your service to the country. Right. You now have and hepatitis. And I mean, like, like, I can understand, like, back then, the lack of modern medicine. Like, that was the modern medicine. Right. <laughs> and in a wartime, when they're trying to solve these issues, like, that's the most efficient, I guess, way, way to, to do, do it. it. Yeah. Yep. In another hepatitis experiment, researchers wanted to find out if hepatitis could be prevented by treating contaminated water. Because you can also get it from drinking bad water. Contaminated water. Yes. Up to this point, hepatitis had proven to pass through water filters and were resistant to bacteria water treatment methods. Objectors were given water that had been contaminated with feces from a person that had hepatitis. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. Drinking poo water. They are drinking poo water. Some of the water. What a worse job. <laughs> yeah. Are you sure you're really this against violence? We're going to make you drink poo water. Yeah. Ugh. Some of the water specimens also contained E. coli. Mm, so just, another good one. Yep. Some of the water samples had been filtered, coagulated, or passed through activated carbon, or treated with varying levels of chlorine. And some of the water samples were untreated as a control. Hmm. You know, to make sure that those people do get hepatitis. Right. Each objector was required to drink 2.75 liters of the water sample over a period of 24 hours. 
Three liters of poo water? They give you three liters of water. Like, okay, you got to finish this in a day. It's poo water. Straight up poo water. Three liters. Three Three liters. liters. Yep. Gosh, I could barely drink three liters of regular water. (laughs) Just in general. Yeah. Nice, clean, filtered, fresh water. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Treated specifically for poo. And that's the thing is like, they knew that it was poo water. Yeah. It's not oh, like just man. drink this water. Uh. The only water sample group that had nobody contract hepatitis were those in the chlorine treatment group. So it suggested that chlorine could inactivate the virus. Mm. So cool for those guys. Yeah. They're like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, still poo water, but at least we didn't get hepatitis. Yeah. I mean, I still had to drink three liters of poo water. Right. But I can tell you, having drink drank... Chlorinated army water. It is, I don't know, poo water. Well. Not far behind. (laughs) It's a hard choice. Yeah. Especially when they, like, if you get somebody who really doesn't know what they're doing and they just put way too much chlorine in it. it I mean, obviously it's chlorine. Right. Not good for you. No. And uh, just Just like drinking out of a pool. Yeah, it makes me sick. I can always tell, too, like, all of a sudden, like, one morning I'll wake up and just be like, my throat just, like, hurts. Just burns. Just feel, just feel like trash. Yeah. Yeah, like, like you've been swimming in a pool all day and just, like... Gulping water. Gulping, <laughs> yeah, gulping chlorine water. Those that did contract hepatitis experienced the awful symptoms that go along with it, including weakness, nausea, muscle pains, abdominal pains, upper respiratory infections, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Et hepatitis is not a fun thing to get. No. The men all recovered, and after an extended time, researchers took liver biopsies of the men to see if there had been any lasting damage to their livers. The researcher who conducted the biopsies was C. Everett Koop, who was later appointed Surgeon General by Ronald Reagan. Hmm. And what did he find? Uh, Permanent damage? I think... I don't know. I don't know what he found. So did they get permanent damage from the hepatitis? I don't believe so, but I don't know. They They all lived long lives, and I don't believe they had permanent liver damage. If they did, it didn't impact their lives. Yes. Significantly. Yes. Next study. In order to study... Same people? Um, Same people that have gone through the lysing? No, so these have all been different people. Okay. For the most different part. Groups, different, different groups. Different yeah, groups, yeah. They're all kind of spread out across the country, hmm. too. They don't want the lice folks hanging out with the hepatitis folks. I mean, I feel like once you do the lice or once you do the hepatitis, you've you've given enough to the country... You don't need to keep going. Yeah. That's my feeling anyway. Yeah. And I still don't think they're getting paid. They're not like they're not getting paid because they're part of CPS. They're just getting their housing and food. Yeah. It's our poo water. And poo water. Deodorant <laughs> that causes genital burning. Yeah. <laughs> In order to study the effects of dehydration on the body, the objectors were put into a room that was one hundred and thirty degrees. Oh, my god! They had to stay in the room until they lost 10% of their body weight, which took some of them as long as 12 hours. Afterward, the men would submit blood, urine, and breath samples. Once their samples were taken, they were given a liter jug of lukewarm salt water. One of the men said that it tasted marvelous, better than champagne. The experiment was conducted every other day for three months. 
Could you imagine losing 10% of your body weight every, every other day? Sounds terrible. I can't imagine going into a room that is 130 degrees for 12 hours every other day. That's crazy. That seems like torture. Yes. Legit torture. But they but signed up for it. They and signed up stuck, for it. Stuck with <laughs> they it, apparently. They did. I didn't like, see I, I, anybody that failed out of that of that study. Like, I just, you know, you say these things and I'm just like, God, they had to, like, chain these guys up and, you know. But they volunteered to do it. Yeah. These men were, like, showing up every day. Like, I'm ready. I'm doing it for my country. Researchers then wanted to study the effects of high-altitude flight. The researchers had a 12-foot-tall beer processing tank. They cut a hatch in the tank and then hooked it up to a tree spraying compressor pump. Two men could sit in the tank, and then the researchers would begin to make the air thinner and thinner, basically until the men passed out. Jeez. And then be like, all right, that's good. Repressurize it. Repressurize it. it. Yeah. Wake them up. It was found that... uh. Pilot could potentially breathe air in an unpressurized cabin up to 15,000 feet, but if they were breathing oxygen through a mask, they could get up to an altitude of 40,000 feet. And the way they found this out was they just kept putting men in there and kept depressurizing it until they passed out, and then they'd be like, okay, that was it. What was the reading on that? Yep. How did they not figure it out after, like, two days of that? Well, you want, like, several people in there, like... Well, I imagine that once you pass out the first time, that they don't put you back in there the same day. Oh, I don't think it was the same day, but you would go back, like, consecutive days. That's what I'm saying, is they had enough people that they probably could have figured it out that it was 15,000 feet in a day. One man said that every time he would... Every time <laughs> they he just did it... really, really wanted to solidify that number. Yeah. So every time that he did it, he would black out coming down from 15,000 feet too fast and his head would feel like a balloon. Oh, yeah. It was awful. Yeah, your head just like feels like it's about ready to just literally Pop. explode. Yeah. I have problems like sometimes driving up a steep hill and my steep, ears are like... <laughs> a steep grade that yeah. is 300 feet tall. <laughs> like This feels awful. Or even just like when a plane is descending, I'm one of those people that's like constantly popping... They're mm-hmm. trying to pop their jaw so that my ears will pop. Mm-hmm. I would not be good for this experiment. No. During an experiment to find an inexpensive source of protein, some of the men were fed several different diets where the protein was switched out constantly. They would start out with having eggs every day as their protein. Then they would have three days of no protein where they would only be fed biscuits, butter, and sugar water. After those three How days... How did you get signed up for this one? That's the one <laughs> I want to be a part of right now. <laughs> Or wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. You don't really want to be signed up for this one. But wait, there's more. So after those three days of not having any protein, so Uh it's like bringing them down to a baseline, um, the biscuits would be baked with the test protein, whichever protein they wanted to test that time. So like almond, pea, protein, Mm. just all kinds of different kinds. You're not dissuading me from this. So then they would eat those for three days. Mm-hmm. So just biscuits made with the protein, butter, and sugar water. Samples were taken from the men, and then they'd drink an amino acid solution for three days. And then they were back to three days of eggs before they had to try out the next protein substitute. Depending on what protein was used, the biscuits would be so hard that they were inedible. The men would fling the biscuits off of the fourth story of the laboratory and then watch them bounce around but never break. <laughs> hmm. The objectors had to be on the cycle for six weeks. I still don't feel... What? 
Sometimes you can't even eat your biscuits. For three days? Okay. But like... (laughs) (laughs) Then we're getting eggs again. Okay, well, let's say this is probably the best one out of all of them. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. (laughs) Poo water, lice underwear... Or biscuits that you just can't eat for three days. In a beer Yeah, yeah, exactly. The biscuit one. I'll take the biscuit one. No, the biscuit one, like if you're if you have to choose, it's that's the best one to be a part of. Uh, Yeah. For sure. (laughs) So at the end of the six weeks of this cycle, they were treated with a steak and lobster dinner with all of the fixings. Yeah, and then geez. Yeah, no, those guys definitely had it the best out of all of them. They're finally, for everybody else, they just finally kind of sort of cured their issues. <laughs> <Yeah>. Like <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> hepatitis, it was like, hey, sorry you got hepatitis, glad you oh, made it. Yeah. In 1944, brochures were sent out to objectors that were titled, Will You Starve That They Be Better Fed? Within months of the brochures being sent out, researchers received more than 400 applications for the 36 spots that needed to be filled. They interviewed 100 candidates and then selected the most physically and psychologically fit. World War II was causing famines and food shortages all over the world. When Japan invaded China, the disruption of transportation, interference with the growing season, and the Japan troops taking food caused immediate mass food shortages in China. There were also food shortages across Europe, but another major problem were all of the malnourished and starved people that the Allies were releasing from prison and concentration camps. Right. There were millions of people that at best they were ill-fed and at worst they were deliberately starved to death. Right. And I mean, I think, like, you've seen videos of people like Camp Auschwitz and those people are literally just walking skeletons. Yeah, bones with skin. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, how do we get these people back to a healthy weight? Renourished. Renourished. But, like, without killing them. Right. Because if we just let them eat whatever they want now... They're going to overindulge. They're just going to explode. And overindulge. And yeah. Then Re- their bodies haven't had to process anything for... Right. Researchers wanted to know how to safely bring these people back to a well-nourished and healthy weight. So, for the first 12 weeks, the objectors consumed a diet that consisted of 3,492 calories a day. They then spent the next 24 weeks going through semi-starvation where they only consumed 1,570 calories a day and had to walk 22 miles and work 15 hours a week. And then they ended the experiment with a rehabilitation 12-week period where they ate 2,449 calories a day. During the semi-starvation part of the experiment, the men experienced significant decreases in their weight, strength, stamina, body temperature, heart rate, and sex drive. Mm -hmm. So they stopped caring really about anybody else but themselves and food. It's literally all they cared about anymore. Mm -hmm. The researchers wanted to see each test subject lose at least 25% of their weight. If they didn't lose it fast enough, their calories were cut back even more. Their diet mostly consisted of cabbage, potatoes, and wheat bread, or the standard diet of a European under occupation. A lot of root vegetables. Along with the physiological effects, there were also severe psychological effects. Being constantly hungry made made the men obsessed with food. Mm -hmm. And, like, if you're on a diet, you're, like, always thinking about food. Or I always thought, like, sometimes when I go to the gym, I'd be on the treadmill and you got the little TVs on there. And I'd watch the Food Network, like, while running. And I don't know why I was torturing myself like that, but I did it a lot. Yeah. (laughs) 
I never it was did. just some kind of weird psychological thing. Right. Some of the men collected cookbooks so they could just read about food that they couldn't have. Oh. And others would go to a restaurant, only order a cup of coffee, and just watch other people eat. And then get irrationally angry when people wouldn't finish their food. <laughs> like, you imagine just sitting at a table and there's just some dude, like, sipping his coffee, just, like, staring at you every time you take a bait. He's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eat that. <laughs> is that a, is that a, it's a steak. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're, nice. They're just, like, licking the air, trying to get, like, <laughs> yeah. anything from it. According to the APA, the men would dream and fantasize about food, read and talk about food, and savor the two meals a day they received. They would like be licking their plates and licking mm-hmm. their fingers and every, color. every single crumb they were savoring. They reported fatigue, irritability, depression, and apathy. Irritability, you know about that one. I do. Jeremy's probably the grumpiest person I know when he's hungry. <laughs> Actually, our toddler's son is probably right up there with him. It's he's, close second. Yeah. There's something about when their blood sugar gets a little too low that they just kind of turn into grumblings. Yeah. I always have to keep snacks around for both Jeremy and my toddler. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a trick my dad never even caught on to growing up well he finally did though because i remember the first time christmas shopping with you and your dad you got grumpy about something and we were like in target and you stormed off and he went and bought popcorn and he was like i'll make it better and he brought you popcorn (laughs) and you like turned back into like an agreeable nice person again i was like what is this witchcraft (laughs) your dad's like this is just what you got to do when he's grumpy that story's a lie that never happened. It totally happened. I don't remember it. <laughs> Apparently it was a significant event for you, but I, I have no recollection I, of this. I mean, it was the first time I found out that snacks <laughs> would make you a happy person. <laughs> hmm. There's still sometimes I'm like, uh-oh, I need to order some food. <laughs> You're getting cranky. Anywho, you'd be a terrible person for this experiment. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the worst experiment. (laughs) Probably. One man broke his diet by going to several shops and ordered sundaes and malted milks. He just went big. And then he went to a grocery store and stole and ate several rutabagas, which, (laughs) out of all the things to steal and break your diet on. That's what he wanted. Yeah. He also ate large amounts of gum. Everybody, like, well, everybody part of the experiment was allowed gum. Mm -hmm. But this guy was eating, like, was going through, like, 12 packs of gum a day. Because he was just like, he was chewing it and then swallowing it. Yeah. Because he was so hungry. Yeah. He's like, they'll never know. Yeah. And he would also eat scraps of food that he found in garbage cans. Oh. Desperate. Yeah. This guy was hungry. He was removed from the experiment along with another man that broke his diet also. Mm-hmm. But just no details are written on that guy because apparently he didn't go as hard <laughs> as this guy right. did. The men struggled to get their strength back after the experiment. Three weeks after the semi-starvation part of the experiment ended, a man named Sam Leg went to chop wood for a fire. He only weighed about 113 pounds at the time, and he could barely get the axe in the air. He brought the axe down and ended up chopping the three middle fingers on his left hand off. Ah, yikes. He was rushed to the hospital to get his hand stitched up. When one of the research assistants saw his hand with his three missing fingers, she thought that he had eaten them off. <laughs> she was like, you should have just told me and we would have pulled you from the experiment. <laughs> he didn't have to let it get this far. 
like, I didn't eat my fingers. <laughs> She's like, oh my god, this is awful. We need to stop this now. People are literally eating themselves. <laughs> the war ended before the starvation experiment did. But the results helped the United States create a foreign policy that set a precedent for how America combated poverty, disease, and malnutrition after war. It was found that people that were starving really just needed raw calories instead of a mixture of vitamins and proteins. Hmm. Like, oh, you just, you're malnourished, you just need some vitamins and protein. And what they really need is just calories Hmm. from whatever, whatever. wherever, however. Yeah. I mean, they needed vitamins too, but really it was just they needed calories. Mm-hmm. The CPS camps continued to exist until April 1947 and had around 12,000 total conscientious objectors go through the program. Hmm. And that's the story of conscientious objectors. In World War II? In World War II. Nice. Going through a lot. Yeah, I'll say. I think they can be, they're heroes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, like I said, it's crazy to think like that's, that was modern medicine because we really didn't, we really didn't know what the effects were. Right. And so like, this is kind of the time too, where Nazis were also conducting a lot of human Human experiments, experiments. but they were doing it on uh, mental institution patients and Jews that were held in concentration camps. Tons of different minorities. Definitely people that did not volunteer. Yeah. Um, Japan was doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, not volunteers. Uh, really terrible experiments on people where they really just didn't care if they lived and, or died. And yeah, I mean, it was definitely a lot more just like, let's test the extremes. Let's test the total extent of what people can live through. Without, without, a, without second thought as to the actual human that we're testing it on. Right. We're here, I mean... They got people really skinny. They gave people hepatitis. A lot of people passed out a lot, but... For the most part. For the most part, I don't believe anybody died. Yeah. During any of these experiments. Hmm. So, whereas, like, I know, like, Nazis were like, oh, how long does it take a person to drown? Right. And would literally just, like, drown a ton of people until they got an average, you know? Mm-hmm. So, Jeez. hey, look, a story where uh, Nazis didn't, like... Learn from learn us. From, learn a bad thing from us. That's good. Hey, look, America, you're the good ones in the story. Yeah. <laughs> Woohoo! Chalk one up for America. My sources for the story are Acts of Conscience, World War II, Mental Institutions, and Religious Objectors by Stephen J. Taylor. America Experimented on Conscientious Objectors During World War II by Darian Kavanaugh. Men of Peace and the Search for the Perfect Pesticide. Conscientious Objectors, the Rockefeller Foundation, and Typhus Control Research by Allison Bateman House, and They Served Country and Conscience by Eric Schmidt. Okay, presidential trivia. Which president liked to get naked and go swimming every morning? Benjamin Franklin. He's not a president. <laughs> you know this. We've gone over jo- this. It was a joke. It was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> It was... My John- guess was Andrew Jackson, in case yes. you forgot. It was John Quincy Adams, Ooh. the guy with the mutton chops. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> That's not a good picture. No. <laughs> he was... Uh, the more I learn about John Quincy Adams, I feel like 
He's a very eccentric president. Yeah. I like him, but he also did a lot of weird stuff. Sure. So as we're recording this, tomorrow is Inauguration Day Mm -hmm. for Joe Biden, and we'll see what happens. Well, (laughs) who knows? Yep. So by the time this is released, you will have known what happens. Yeah. Or is happening. So. Yeah. So. We're excited to. We can recap that (laughs) next next week. (laughs) If anything, truly, like, I mean, the inauguration is eventful, but, you know, like, uh, out uh, of the uh, ordinary eventful right. happened. We'll talk about it next week. But until then, we hope you stay safe. Stay healthy. And until next time, stay, stay weird, weird, America. America.